And here's what we're going to find out today. Awkward. We're going to find out who jumps back and forth between campuses. Not that's a big sin, but if you're that person, you're about to hear the same sermon again then. So if you were at Florence last week, you're going to hear what I did right there. And if there's people that were here that are now there, they're going to hear drop the rock again. But here's what we believe, that there is a God. And so if you're here and you think, oh, my word, I heard this last week, we believe God must want you to hear it again. (laughs) That maybe there's still more to be done through the message. This past weekend, we hosted a marriage conference church-wide, and we are in the midst of a sermon series where we're talking about the church as the family of God. And we didn't think of this, not just some clever marketing thing. Let's, let's go family. Let's talk about it as a family. All we did was look at the Bible and say, oh my, he talks about us being family. That older men that are around you, treat them like your father. Older women, consider them your mother. Other guys, your brother. Other girls, your sister. We didn't make this up. But more than just trying to say, what would the f- family of God look like? We really want to wrestle with, what is it that's supposed to keep us loving each other? Loving. Keep us. See, if you know anything about love, and I hope all of you do, it's not that hard to start loving someone, is it? What we wrestle with is, how do I keep loving that same person? You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Just have some more birthdays. Keep living life. And you will. Because we live in a fallen, broken world, how do I keep on loving the same people? Because there is something at stake here. Big. See, it's as we continue to love each other in the family of God, rather than change churches every three to five years as we get hurt or disillusioned or we don't like something, as we keep loving each other in the family of God, that's when the world says, what is that? What do you have that I don't have? And maybe, just maybe, I should reconsider and think again about this whole Christianity thing and Jesus thing. It's our love, our persistent, consistent, long-term love in the face of hurt that causes the world to say, I don't have that. And it gives you an opportunity to talk of our Savior, to talk about the gospel. So whether you were with us for the marriage conference last weekend or you just showed up today, I think you're going to be glad that you came. Because I'm going to talk to you about something that is too often missing. It's missing in our marriages as well as other relationships. Whether it's a group of singles that have decided to share space together, whether it's roommates, whether it's church relationships, whether it's a friendship that you're just trying to keep this friendship alive for a lifetime. Too often, there is something missing. I'm going to illustrate it for you this way. I'm a coffee guy. And I don't want just any old coffee. Some of you are like, oh, when I see what you drink, I think, oh my, no, no. We're not talking about the same thing. I want coffee that has been harvested from somewhere wonderful, like Nicaragua. That was dried in the right way. That was packaged in the right way, that was shipped in the right way, roasted in the right way. You get the idea. Why? Because I actually want to taste my coffee. Unlike some of you that dump loads of artificially flavored creamers into it with names like French vanilla, hazelnut, pumpkin spice. Oh, please, no. 
Right? You're not tasting the coffee. Pumpkin spice, hello. But you could have just put hot water in there and dumped pumpkin, pumpkin spice flavor in there and drink that. Why? I want to taste the coffee, but listen, I do have a confession to make that here's where we separate the big boys from, and I'm going to lose some of you that are hardcore even ahead of me. I want to taste it, but I would never think of drinking my coffee without adding just a little bit, just a little bit of natural sweetener, like stevia or monk fruit. And here's a confession also. Monk fruit's my favorite. But forever, all we could find was this brand called Skinny Girl. This is awkward. When a man like me pulls a little tube of Skinny Girl out of his pocket, this is, I had to keep it gripped in my entire fist so that no one could see what I was squirting. And then I realized, hey, peel the label off. That's what I started. Peel that label off. Now we have found a Walmart brand that has, didn't ha- doesn't have the high-heeled woman like this Skinny Girl. Stevia. Or monk fruit. Why? Just to take the edge off of what can be a little harsh or bitter all by itself. And stay with me. Relationships. Relationships are some of the richest gifts that God has given us in this world. I hope you know that. There's a reason that you enjoy people. Those are the ones that can hurt us the most. But those are the ones that, I mean, people are some of the richest gifts that God has given us. There's a delight, there's a wonder, there's a beauty, there's a, some of the richest gifts that God's given us. Why? Because people are created in the image of God. But, but, you've probably found this out by now. Because we are still sinners, even after God saves us, still sinners after God saves us, it means that marriage... All by itself. Even between two Christians. Maybe this was a shock to you. It was to me. Because I thought, I married a Christian. And we met at Bible college. Yeah. And she was a piece of work. No, we were both. Oh man, we had struggles. Marriage all by itself can still, even between two Christians that love Jesus, turn bitter on you. It means that friendships... On their own, even between Christians that you say, I chose to room with him. We chose to share a house together. You can find yourself 18 months, three years into it. You don't even want to be in the same room with that person. And yet no one made you room together. Most, in most cases, like, hey, let's room together. Why? Because we're friends. End of friendship. I watched it happen over and over and over in college. I would watch. I actually, instead of doing what I'm going to talk to you about today... I actually said, I'm never rooming with a friend so that we can always be friends. I'd watch people decide to room together the next year because they're best friends. There's something about human beings at close range that brings out the difficulties in ways that we don't experience in other settings. This is the missing ingredient so often It's not kicked in as it should in our marriages, our friendships, our roommate situations, our church relationships. What is it that I'm talking about? If you can read the title, you can answer this. Say it. What's missing? Say it again. Mercy. Mercy. I would put it to you this way. Mercy is the sweetener that flavors all our earthly relationships 
It changes. It can change the flavor of all our earthly relationships and keep them alive. See, we tend to think, I just need to find a better friend. I I need to make a better friend. I keep choosing poorly. I need a better church. I need a better small group. I need better coworkers. And you go from job to job, marriage to marriage, church to church. Mercy is the sweetener that changes the flavor of all of our earthly relations. Some, some of you are saying, what is wrong with my marriage? I married a Christian and it's still, whew, the taste of our marriage is so hard to swallow. So often mercy has not kicked in as it should. My first point is this. See, until we're fully sanctified, mercy is what keeps all of our earthly relationships alive. But let's get a definition on mercy. If we're going to use this word for the next 45 minutes. Paul Tripp says mercy is the kind, sympathetic, forgiving treatment of others. That works to relieve their distress and cancel their debt. And he's not talking about a financial debt. If you've lived life long enough and you've been in any relationship long enough, then you know what he's talking about. There is this sense of debt that builds up because you've hurt me. You've disappointed me now. You've let me down now. It's not turning out like I thought. And we have this sense towards those close to us. You owe me. There's a debt building up. Mercy seeks to relieve the other person, their distress, and to cancel their debt. So in other words, mercy only becomes mercy when it gets dispensed and poured out on others around us. My stevia and my monk fruit do absolutely no good if it stays locked away in my kitchen cabinet. It's only when I get it out and pour it into my coffee cup that it makes a difference. It has to be poured out. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6 and we're going to look at we're going to look at what Jesus says about this sweetener, mercy. Luke chapter 6, I do hope you have your Bible with you so you can see God's word. My words don't matter. God's word can change your life. Here's the power. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. Words of Jesus. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. I'm sorry. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not hold, withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them. Likewise, Now, what he's about to do next is what he so often does. He anticipates what we might be thinking. And what we're often thinking is, yeah, I do that. I do that. We're good. This whole message is for somebody else. He's about to kick the legs out from under what we think he's talking about. And that we hold up as an example of obedience to this and say, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. Watch what he does beginning in verse 32. But... If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for, say it, how much? Say it again. Nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the highest. For he, God the Father, is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we're not about to have a group meeting where we all share our thoughts. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your commitment to grow us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. Help us. Give give us ears to hear your voice, as your son said so often. He who hears, let him be careful how he hears. Give us ears to hear and not to say, oh, this would be such a good message for so-and-so. I wish they were here. Give us ears to hear your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, do you see what Jesus just did in this passage? What he did is he put mercy in the context of our worst possible relationship. Worst case scenario, enemy enemy so as he teaches he puts it out there in the worst case possible scenario but don't make a mistake and say well good as persecution continues in america and things get worse i'll be ready after this message brad to practice some of these things with my enemy i don't want you to do that because i don't think he wants you to do that if that's what he says to do out there with my enemy then i think we can work backwards And draw the conclusion that he expects us to do this here in our home. With our husband, with our wife, with our kids, with our teenagers, with our young adult children, with our co-workers, with other church family, brothers and sisters. Here, close at home. Merciful, merciful. Merciful. And I want you to notice what else he's emphasizing because he does it so often as you go through the Gospels and you track with Jesus. You'll see him emphasizing this repeatedly. Jesus is emphasizing in this passage as people stood and listened that love, mercy, forgiveness is supposed to be the very calling card of those who say, I'm a child of God. Of those who are adopted children of the living God. This is supposed to be what characterizes us. When you say something characterizes someone, it means that, right? It doesn't just show up every now and then, once in a blue moon, like, oh, that was different. She never does that. Yay. No, you've done it so often. Perfectly? No. But so often that someone would say, that characterizes him. That characterizes her. Jesus is saying this. Love. Mercy. 
forgiveness is supposed to be what characterizes us as his children in this broken world. Not our hate, not our judgment, not so many things that sadly too often characterizes Christians so that the world will say, I don't want what you have. I don't know what you have, but I don't want to be like you. Love, mercy, forgiveness. You say, where are you getting this, Brad? Verse 35. Look at the second half of verse 35 where he says... You begin to do what I'm asking you to do. You begin to live this way where you're not just loving those that love you. Who can't do that? You're not just giving to those that are probably going to give back to you at some point. Who can't do that? You are loving those who don't love you. You're blessing those who curse you and spitefully use you. He says in the second half of verse 35, you begin to do this and your reward will be Great. So we just pushed out into the one day, someday world to come. And that's good. Great. You will have a reward. But he also did something else. See the second phrase after your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the highest. Do you understand what he's saying? That's when you look like your father. That's when someone draws the conclusion, must be a child of God because God's like this. God is so loving and merciful and forgiving. So is she. Connection. She must be a daughter of the one true living God. Then you will be sons of the highest. You never never act and look more like your heavenly father than when you're pouring out mercy on people around you. And don't jump to the homeless man or woman. Don't jump to the person in the library. Don't jump. Yeah, I hope we are compassionate towards these people. But folks, let's be honest, right? That's easy compared to being merciful and compassionate and forgiving to the people that are closest to us. Because they're the ones that hurt us the most. That person out there hasn't hurt me like this person has hurt me. This is where mercy really, really shines. It's supposed to characterize us. And notice all the action verbs that's in this passage. Mercy is more than a feeling. There is a feeling, but mercy is far more than a feeling. You could say it this way. Mercy is compassion in action. Because do you see it? Love. Do good. Pray. Bless. Give. Mercy moves towards that other person to do them good. Let me just say it. Some of you have been thinking, God is so proud of me. I'm proving that I'm his child because I haven't ripped her face off. That's what I want to do. Look at me, God. Yay, not ripping her face off. He's not thrilled. Mercy, please don't rip her face off. But it's so much more than that. You say, oh my goodness, but how? That's why this this is all supernatural, right? But Jesus rose from the dead. The chains of sin have been broken. The, The spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ lives in you. You have a power that unbelievers don't have. Please know, you can't do this on your own. But if you say you're a child of God, And you've been forgiven. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. And you've got direct access to his throne. You have everything you need to do this. 
Is it easy? Oh, no, because you also still have this sinful flesh that is at war with these very concepts. But it's more than just don't hurt them. Mercy moves towards that other person to do them good. It's active. Why? Because that's how God has shown mercy for us. God did not just sit in the heavenlies, right? And feel merciful. God put flesh and bones on mercy and sent his son into this world for us. He moved towards us in an unbelievable way. Laid aside his privileges and rights and stooped and moved towards us. Came to us to do us good. Everything about our mercy and love and forgiveness is connected to what he's done for us. So when you struggle and say, but, 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 but. Don't look around in this world for any other example and say, are you asking me to have mercy like my grandfather? Get your eyes off this world. We look to Christ. We look to our Savior. How has he had mercy on us? That's how we're supposed to have mercy on others. Merciful Heavenly Father. I'll put it to you this way. His mercy to us. And it is a delightful thought when you think, God has had mercy on me. God doesn't give me what I deserve. God's given me grace. Oh, my goodness. I'm an object of mercy. In fact, that's one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. You find Paul talking that way in Tim- as he wrote to Timothy. I'm an object of mercy. I was under God's wrath. I was this. I was that. And now he had mercy on me. He had mercy on me. He had mercy on me. But listen to me. God's mercy to us was never meant to stay with us, but is supposed to be passed on through us to others. If you're an object of mercy, you should be one of the most merciful people in the world. Because have you noticed this? I'm sure it's not just me. We live in a mercy deficient culture. Is it characterized by mercy? Oh, there's some mercy. Look at that mercy. I don't see it. You see people in department stores and it is about you. You cut in front of me. You did this. You, I have been wrong. You see it at work. You see it in the neighborhood. You see it with sports and little kids. And I'm all over that coach because my child should have put it, been put in. There. There's not mercy. It's law. We live in a broken, suffering, law-filled world. You say, well, what, what's God got going for him? This is going to surprise some of you. Us. You're like, please tell me he has another plan. No. Us. Can you imagine? Millions of Christians all over the world in workplaces, in neighborhoods, in sports, in, 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 in. But they're some of the most merciful. They're operating differently they're up and it gets everyone's attention. Yes, we just finished two series in the last 18 months about, you know, live out loud, start conversations about the gospel, Jesus, bring it up, have courage to talk about Jesus. But let me give you some hope here. If you think, oh, that's so hard for me. If you would begin to live the way this passage is calling us to live, you won't have to bring up out of the blue conversations about Jesus and the gospel. People will ask you what is going on because it's so rare. 
1 Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. As they see you at work not respond like everybody else does to that very same thing that just happened, and they say, what is that? When they see you show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it, who has spitefully used you and is unthankful, and you're getting nothing back, they don't know what to do with that. And you have an opportunity to say, oh my goodness, I could never do that except for what Jesus has done for me. The gospel, Jesus. And it ought to be natural, but it's just not. You would think objects of mercy would readily become dispensers of mercy. But sadly, it doesn't happen like it should. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to myself, all of us. Elise Fitzpatrick, that's a name you might know. Good author, good teacher, great biblical counselor. She tells a testimony of her own life, of what God had done in her life. And some of you perhaps can relate to it. She was already a Christian, so I'm not saying she got saved. But maybe it was you, and maybe you've seen it happen in others. Do you know the difference between knowing God has saved you and forgiven you? And then also knowing, oh my goodness, my relationship now with him is not based upon how well I do to earn and keep his love. Sadly, a lot of Christians would say, I know I'm saved by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone plus nothing. But now... I've got to do all these Christian things well enough. I better be in a small group. I've got to, and you better. I've got to be, I better be reading my Bible. I better be witnessing. I better be, and there's this sense that I know he saved me, but I stay saved and I keep his love by doing enough for the right things. And it's exhausting and joyless. And so she had a season where God rocked her world to begin to understand to move her from a legalistic, works-oriented relationship with God to what she described as, I had come into a grace-filled, peaceful existence with my merciful, heavenly Father. When that happens, you are so excited. It's such good news. It's almost like gospel revisited, gospel part two. It's almost like an awakening that you want to talk about it. So she began to... Tell this to a group of ladies she was meeting with for Bible study. She was just so excited. But there was one lady who created an awkward moment. She didn't mean to. She didn't mean to put Elise on the spot. But she was so excited about what she heard Elise talking about. She just naturally assumed and thought, Whoo, if it's that, then this has probably happened too. Elise says this. She says... I began to share that the pressure was off me now in my relationship with God. She said, don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not pursuing holiness. It's just that I know my heavenly father will get me where he wants me to be. And that even my failures serve in some way to glorify him. My relationship with God is growing to be all about his grace, his mercy, his power. And when she said that. One of the women in her group blurted out, 
Oh, Elise, that must be such a blessing for your husband, Phil. Some of you know where this is headed. Wow, to be experiencing that kind of grace must enable you to be so patient and so grace-filled with him. To know that God is working in Phil, just like he's working in you, must make your marriage so sweet and your husband so pleased. Lisa's probably thinking, please stop talking. Right? She said, it's got to be great for Phil to know that the pressure is off for him too. And she says, there was an awkward silence. Because she said, I realized in that moment that I rarely ever made the connection between God's mercy and grace to me. And my mercy and grace to my husband, Phil. She says, I scarcely ever extended to Phil the grace I enjoyed with the Lord. Instead, I was frequently more like the man in Jesus' parable. We're going to get to that before the end of the message. Who went out after being forgiven such a great debt and beat his fellow servant. Let me ask you. I'm not asking you. It's a different message and it's a great question. I'm not asking you, are you a child of God? Do you know you've been forgiven? Do you know you're adopted? Do you? I'm asking you if you say, yes, I am forgiven, adopted, loved, on my way to heaven. How strong, how strong is the connection between God's mercy to you? And your mercy towards others around you. Like your spouse. And your children. And your friends. And your small group. And other church brothers and sisters. Is mercy being passed on to others through you? If not, why not? And if you're saying, all right, Brad. That might be me. I may need help. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you just thought mercy was a feeling. And you say, what would it look like? Then what would it look like to pass on mercy to others? This is not exhaustive, but let me get you the juices going with just two examples of what it would look like to pass on mercy to others. Number one, passing on mercy to others means you're willing to forbear and suffer because of someone else's Sin. Oh, you're willing to forbear and suffer because of someone else's sin. In other words, this is what you're doing when you pass on mercy to others. You're saying mercy is my commitment in a fallen, broken world to love you. Even when I need to suffer with you. And there can be people that pull away from that. But most of us can get that. I'll suffer with you. I won't let you suffer alone. I'll go with this through you. I'm willing to suffer with you. I'm willing to suffer for you. There's even times that I'll step in the way of the whole deal. And I'll take it. You won't even have to. But here's where we really struggle. I'm willing to suffer with you. I'm willing to suffer for you. I'm willing to suffer because of you. It's you. It's your stuff that has actually affected me and hurt me. 
That's the one that causes us to turn so often and walk away. Let's be honest, right? Mercy sounds like this beautiful thing. And it is. Until it begins to cost us more than we thought we were going to have to pay. We know enough. If you walk with the Lord a while and you live life, you know enough to know that, hey, relationships are glorious and they're costly. But here's what we do. We anticipate and calculate the cost and head into the relationship. And it almost always exceeds what we thought we were going to have to pay. And that's when we're tempted to walk away. Relationships will always cost you more than you anticipated because they're always comprised of sinners. It's the only kind of relationship you're going to find in this fallen, broken world. Sinners. And it's the cost that causes us to pull back. Someone had said, someone says, mercy is the commodity that everyone desires and no one wants to give. Mercy. Let me show you what else it looks like. Passing on mercy to others around you means that you're not in a hurry and you're willing to wait. Mercy's not in a hurry. You stop looking for that already fully sanctified switch to throw on your spouse, right? Where is it? I need you to grow up. I need your immaturity to come to an end. I need your weaknesses to end. I need your sin to be repented of. Where is the fully sanctified switch? Here's what's interesting about this. We never think, where is it on me? No, we just assume it's them. Where's that button? Where's that switch? Get it together. I need you to get it together. Mercy means you're willing to live with a process mentality. Trusting that God is working in ways that you might not see in this moment. We're willing. It's not in a hurry. And we're willing to wait. Now, don't hear me. Let me give a little disclaimer. Don't hear me say you stay in an abusive relationship where you're being hit and you're your life is threatened and your children's threatened. No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about stuff that's just hurtful. It's hard. It's not in a hurry. It's willing to wait. You say, Brad, how am I going to do that? What's going to keep you there waiting and not in a hurry and not walking away? Love. And not just any old love. It's the kind we've been talking about in this series. The, the love that the Bible says is the greatest love. Agape Love. Remember our definition? Agape love. Are there feelings involved with it? Yes. But it is more than... Oh, it's made of tougher stuff than just feelings. Agape love is a strong, non-sexual affection for someone else that's characterized by a willingness to lay aside my rights and privileges and to give For the good of another, expecting how much? That was pathetic. How much? Nothing in return. Listen to me. You may think you're loving, but get this. The minute you start expecting something in return, you just stopped loving in an agape kind of way. Love is what will keep you in place. Agape love. I read, a, I read a description of this that was, I just thought was beautiful. 
It's fictional. It's, it's a fictional character in, in, in a novel by Louis de Bernier titled Corelli's Mandolin. And he has a man talking to his son, describing to his son what real love is and what he and his wife, the son's mother, have. Listen to what he says. I don't know if this author's a Christian, but he gets it right. The man is speaking, and he says, Love, quote, love itself is what is left over after being in love has burned away. See, we live in a culture that's all about being in love. I want to feel this certain way, and it is glorious. What are you going to do when that feeling isn't there? Love is what is left over when being in love is burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one and not two. That's agape love. He understands. Listen, folks, we live in a day, and you may be guilty of this, that you think it's find where it smells great, find where it's beautiful, and I hope you at least start off that way. But listen to me. What are you going to do when all the pretty blossoms have fallen from the branches? And you say, oh, that's not going to happen because I found my soulmate. Uh huh. Just keep having birthdays with your soulmate. And there will be seasons where all, because you're living with a sinner, there will be seasons where all the pretty blossoms have fallen from the branches. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't look good. And if all you were in it for, the only basis was blossoms, you'll be out. Your mother and I had roots that grew towards each other underground. So that when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from the branches, we found that we were one and not two. We celebrated marriage conference. And I was delighted that at least today, I don't know how much longer we'll have this. We had couples that have been married 68 years, 69 years, 52 years, 48 years. Here's what I know, folks. If you're young and you're saying, oh, man, I want to find out the counselor they met with to make sure it was so right. I want to do all the little profile tests they did so they can avoid the mistakes that shut up. I don't even have to interview them. Most of them were on the Florence campus when I preached this. I'm telling you what heads were nodding like a bobble doll. They have been married three and four and five and six headed towards seven decades because they have a root system growing underground towards each other of commitment so that when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from the branches and they've had those times, they found that they were one and not two. What about you? I would propose to you that if you're a believer, you you say, well, what is that root system? It's the gospel. It is the gospel that enables you to still have a root system of commitment towards each other. Do I want feelings? Do I want blossoms? Yes. I love the blossom marriage. 
But what a joy to not be terrified on those seasons that you think, I don't smell blossoms, I don't see blossoms. Oh my goodness, are we? No. Root system. Pretty blossoms will never... Does the Bible talk about oneness in marriage? Yes, but listen to me. Pretty blossoms and feelings will never get you there and it will absolutely not keep you there. You better have a root system underground of something greater that doesn't seem so snazzy and exciting. It's called commitment based on the gospel and what God has done for me. And the only way you can keep that alive, that root system alive, folks, is by never getting over what God has done for you. That's my third point. Your mercy will dry up. Your mercy will dry up without a fresh appreciation of and awareness of God's mercy towards you. You say, Brad, how do I keep that alive? Let me suggest something that you've heard me say before. You keep reading your Bible. How much of it? All of it. For how long? For a lifetime. By God's grace. I hope this never changes. But I'm so grateful. By God's grace. Every year. When I get towards the end. And there's a reason he gives us four gospels. You get to read it four times. When I get to the end of each of the gospels. I am still so moved. By the account of Christ's death for me. If you're going through the John MacArthur through the Bible in a year Bible, then we just hit it just a few, seven to ten days ago in Mark. And I don't ever just race my eyes across it. Ah, Jesus died. There's a reason there's details, folks. There's details. It's like they spit in his face. You just think about that perfect one you say but it's not fair what's happening to me it's that fair do you deserve that they spit in his face i haven't had that happen but just the thought of it you just think oh rage you feel so demeaned they blindfolded him and hit him and it says i think it's they one they hit him with their hands in the face saying prophesy who just hit you Imagine the very one who is keeping their heart pumping, blood out, the right amount in, the right balance of oxygen and all that has to go, their lungs pumping with air. This very one keeping them alive, they are striking him in the face and mocking, saying, who hit you? If you ever get over and say, honestly, that just doesn't do much for me. Christ death on the cross. Really bad day. You won't be able to do what we're talking about here. Without a fresh, ongoing awareness of and appreciation of God's mercy towards you. Your mercy will dry up. And you won't have what you need. To push it out towards others and pour it out on others. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus drives this home point, point home to us with a parable. Where he tells that parable, for the sake of time we won't go there, I'll just tell it. Most of you probably know it. 
question is, are you living it? Are you obeying it? And Jesus tells this parable. And remember, a parable is always a moment where he realizes in the crowd they're not thinking what they should be thinking. And they're not living how they should live in light of who he is and what he's done for them. Therefore, a parable was meant to shock us and shake us from our own comfort to begin to say, oh my. And so he tells this story, parable, of the servant who had a debt and the master forgave him that debt. And in modern terms, if you crunch the numbers, he talks in terms of talents. But he's not talking about a gift. Oh, I have a talent to play the piano. No, a talent was a monetary, like dime, nickel, $50 bill. It was, and the equivalent of what he states in dollars today is that the man had a $9.6 billion debt. That's what it'd be. He owed the master nine point six. In other words, right? Could this man ever have paid this back? No. And the master forgives him. And that servant goes out and finds another servant that owes him. Now, here's where you need to be careful. I hear people preach and tell this and say, oh, the master forgiven us so much in all you. And this person owes you a paltry sum. That's not how Jesus set it up. It wouldn't be hard for us. And they owe me a dollar. Sure, let it go, laddie. Oh, no, that's not how Jesus tells it. The servant owed this man the equivalent of $12,000. It was three months worth of wages. I don't know about you, how God has blessed you. I'm not to the point yet in life where if you owe me $12,000, I could say, ah, don't worry about it. What's $12,000 between friends? No. Can we set up a payment plan? Do you know where and how to give plasma? Do you know the value of your next born child on the market? What can you do? How? I need that back. Okay? I need that back. See, see what he's done? It's an amount that is large enough that it is going to impact me. Isn't that what we find so hard? Little things we let go. Your sin and what just happened is impacted me. It's cost me. I've had to adjust how I live. Maybe I'm going to feel this and live in certain ways for the rest of my life because of what you've done. It hurts. It's big enough that it hurts. Because it's going to cost us And yet, listen to me, I love you. If you're here and you're a Christian and you say, I've been forgiven. I'm being sung over. I have a robe of righteousness. I have no condemnation, hope of heaven. And there is someone or someones that you are refusing to forgive. And you say, I know all he's forgiven me, but no, not going to happen. Hear the words of Jesus. This is right there in verse 31 in Matthew 18. Word got back to the master that that servant went out and choked his fellow servant and said, pay me what you owe me and began to beat him. The master called that man who'd been forgiven the $9.6 billion debt back and looked at him and said, and this is what Jesus would say to you, you wicked servant. I forgave you. All that 
debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? It is a rhetorical question. It's not, well, let me ponder that for years and see what I decide. A resounding yes. Yes, you should. Yes, you must. In fact, this is our calling card. This is what characterizes us. And in fact, this is what calls into question whether you even are his child. People come to me all, for all kinds of reasons, struggling with assurance of salvation. Ah, am I Christian? And it's usually they're all wound up over, did they pray the right prayer? Let me tell you something to get wound up over. You want to have some, something to be concerned about and say, I don't know, maybe I'm not a Christian. If you are unforgiving and bitter, feel free to question whether you are. That's the approach Jesus would take. How, how can you do this? With what I've done for you and I live inside of you. And so as I close, let me help you. I don't want to just stir it up. If you're sitting here and saying, okay, 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 that's me. But I'm stuck. How would I get unstuck? How would I move towards forgiveness? Let me give you three steps. Number one, look the hurt in the face. Forgiveness is not pretending they didn't hurt you. Sometimes we think, oh, I, don't, I can't forgive because then I'm saying it's okay. It's not saying it's okay. It hurt. It was wrong. You look the hurt in the face. Okay? You don't pretend it didn't happen and you don't pretend it didn't hurt. Let the facts stand. It did. It hurts. Step number two. You, you choose to send and put away your hatred. You choose to put away. Ephesians 4 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Those are the things we want to do. I get angry, outburst. I talk bad about them. I slander them. That's natural. You put it away. And you say, Brad, how would I put it away? Oh, my goodness. Let me help you. It's your choice. You put it away by refusing to indulge in the dark pleasures of rehearsing and nursing what they did to you. You know what I mean? Some of you are saying, well, but it's a feeling. How can I get a new feeling? Listen, stop feeding your feelings. Your thoughts are what feed that. And as sinners, most of us are wired this way. We've got two large screen HD surround sound televisions in our mind going. And on this screen, it's the screen of self-pity. Where in slow motion replay, we go over and over what they did. You can see what they were wearing. You know what you were wearing. Why? Because you've rehearsed it so often. What's on this screen, Brad? Over here is the screen of self-pity. Where you fantasize and you just have ideas about what you'd like to see happen to them. Because of what they did to you. And you choose to. <laughs> unplug those. Screen. Oh. You say Brad. Well that. It, this will be hard. Trust me. As you reach for the plug. Your flesh will say. No. No. Don't do that. It's not right. It's not right. Okay. This will be a battle. 
But here's the deal, folks. If Jesus lives in you and the Spirit of Christ lives in you, He's been waiting for this moment. He'll help you. There's all kinds of things we pray and they just bounce off the ceiling. You say, oh God, help me to do this. And he is wa- He's been waiting to hear you say that. Because if you back it up in Ephesians 4, right before he talks about all that bitterness, and cl- he says, do not grieve the Spirit. As you live as a blood-bought, adopted, redeemed, no condemnation, sung over, child of God, and yet you won't forgive, it grieves the Savior who lives in you and died for you. And he's saying, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. You say, well, and, and please know, the Bible never teaches just stop certain things. Just stop. That will never work. You have to replace it. And so here's what I'm talking about. You can't get over God's mercy to you. So you need, if you go to a great American ballpark, I don't know what the size of that screen is, but it's ginormous with clarity and color. You need that ginormous screen going of what God has done for you. The gospel, the cross, his suffering, his death, so that you never get over it. A cost was paid, and that's step number three. You're willing to pay the cost for their sin. You say, it shouldn't cost me. Oh, listen to me. Forgiveness always entails a cost. There is no biblical forgiveness without absorbing a cost because we make a mistake as Christians when we delight in, and it's right to delight in it, but I think there's something we're missing. Oh, the gospel's a free gift. It's a free gift of God. It's free. It's free. It is free. You don't pay a cost, but was a cost paid so that God could forgive you. His son. You look at Isaiah 53 and you see a writer who caught God in the act of forgiving. What it cost God to forgive you. As it says, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. God paid a cost to forgive you. It will cost you. Some of you keep thinking, I just need to surround myself with better friends. Get a better spouse. Find a better church. What if you started pouring on mercy to the relationships you already have? Just like God had mercy on you. Oh God, help us. Help us. Because of the gospel, because of an underground root system, help us to live in a supernatural way so that the world would ask us a reason for the hope that is in us, that we could point to our Savior, we could talk about our Savior, we could share the gospel. May we be characterized by the very thing that makes us look and act most like our Heavenly Father mercy. We pray in his name. Amen.